Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Let me encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 46. Today we're going to be in chapter 46 and chapter 47. Next week we will be in chapter 47 and 48. So as you're preparing through the week, uh, allow your reading to prepare you for next week's message. Today we're in 46 and 47. Let's take just a moment and offer a prayer before our Lord. God, as we open up your sacred word, we recognize that sometimes we need help opening up the the sacred heart, the soul, the mind, because we recognize that we spend all week covering it up, protecting it, defending it, keeping ourselves safe from vulnerabilities. And that's just because we're human, Lord. We have learned to keep safe. But we have also learned that in the presence of your holy and dynamic spirit, we are not safe (laughs) because you intend on changing us. You are intent on loving us until we're transformed. So Lord, we ask that you make us unsafe from you today. Have your way. Open our heart. Open our minds. So that you who designed us, you who knit us together in our mother's wombs, may do in us what you need to do in us. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So today we continue in our series on Joseph. We've been several weeks now in his life and learning from his journey. And last week, we covered four chapters here. We, we covered four chapters of his life. And we recognized last week that the brother, the, the young man Joseph, who was seen as, as a child to have a, a vibrant, multicolored soul, the one who dreamed and talked about his dreams, the one who was beat up and sold down into slavery in Egypt. We, we recognize that he who was trapped and imprisoned, well, kept getting up, not on his own, not because he tried harder, not because life knocked him down and he turned lemons into lemonade, not, not because of all of the ways that you and I attempt to survive life, no, but rather because every time he, he was knocked down and pressed down to the earth, with pain and injury and and difficulty and disappointment, God was raising him up. The relentless, 
subversive love of God kept on picking him up. And last week at the end of four chapters, we recognize that now, finally after many years, his brothers who are now feeling the famine up in Canaan had to come to Egypt for aid, for relief, and they discovered that the brother they thought they had gotten rid of is now in charge of everybody. He is now second in command, only second to Pharaoh himself. And there was this long and dramatic reveal between Joseph and his brothers. And the most powerful part of that whole saga last week was that in this long reveal of who Joseph is to the brothers who didn't recognize him at first, Joseph began for the first time to see all of those disconnected moments in his life that seemed to have no meaning, seemed to have no redemptive purpose, seemed to have no beauty in them whatsoever. They were all brutal. They were all painful. He was beginning last week to see for the first time that God was synergizing all of his life, binding all the broken things in order to bring him to a moment of extraordinary purpose. We saw in his life last week, as it began to come together, we saw why it is that we're choosing to use as our anchor verse through this whole series, Romans 8, 28, which reads, For we know that all things synergize, work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. And last week we ended our time together with the awareness that now it's time for the family to come to Egypt. The drought, the famine is so severe, everybody's got to come. And this time today we pick up the story because the family's got to move. Some 70 persons or more uprooting everything that they know as familiar and comfortable and confident, uprooting it and moving to an entirely new existence and you think planning an extended vacation with family is tough. Listen, in our family, every other year or so, we do an extended family vacation with, the, with family and Laura's, Laura's side of the family. And I'm beginning to recognize why it is that we take two years to do that because it takes about a year to plan it. Where are you going to eat? Who's going to sleep where? When are we going to cook out? When are we going to eat out and so forth? And they're uprooting their entire existence and moving to a new world. There will be drama. There always is. In fact, we're going to see some drama in Joseph because now Joseph, he's, he's climbed to a level of influence. He has become somewhat of a, an Egyptian. So the question that we will see him struggle with on his interior is, am I Egyptian or am I still a member of the family of my birth? And we're going to look at that next week as he struggles to figure out who am I most loyal to, the empire or the promise? But today, we take a different turn. And the text before us takes a different turn because these several weeks, it's all been about Joseph, hasn't it? Every one of these chapters, it's the longest running narrative of any one individual in all the book of Genesis. It's Joseph, 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 but not today. Today, the writer takes us back to Jacob. Jacob makes another appearance on the scene because this whole sermon and this whole message today has something to do with identity. 
we're leaving Egypt, or we're leaving promised land, we're leaving the, the Canaan, and we're moving to Egypt, but what does that mean about who we are? Will it change who we are? There's a question of identity, and sometimes it requires a patriarch to remind you who you are. I remember back when I was just uh, in college, and I had, uh, I had just enough of the biblical languages to make me dangerous. You know, I still am not great with the biblical languages, but then I was just dangerous. I got home one summer, and I was, I was at home on break, just like some of our students are coming home now, and this time armed with what I thought was all the knowledge you need to know about the state, and arrogance oozing from my pores. I get a knock on the door, and it's a, a religious group. And I, I can't even, to be honest with you, remember which one it was. It was either the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witness, one of the groups. And there was a whole family together, so probably Jehovah's Witness. The whole family was standing there. It was mom and dad and two small children, and they have literature for me, and they want to talk to me, and, and I see this as an opportunity to pick a fight. And so I say, yeah, come on in. Brought them into the house. They shared their information. And then verse by verse, I began to pick apart everything they were saying. And I say, ah, you know, but that's not really what that means because technically in the original language it means blah, 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 blah. And they say, well, but, but, but we believe that blah, 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 blah. And I, well, the problem with what you believe is blah, blah, you know. And I, and I was a troublemaker, Diane. I was a troublemaker. About that time, we closed up. We ended in prayer. I offered, can I pray with you? And he said, no, no, let me pray. And we argued about who had the right to pray. We did. I'm serious. And it was just ugly. I just... About that time, my grandfather, patriarch of our family, you've heard me talking about my grandfather at times before, the, the, the single greatest respect I have in the world for any man that I've ever met is my grandfather immigrated here in the early 50s, broke, worked sometimes two and sometimes three jobs to put food on the table, immigrated here from England, uh, hardest working man I ever met, the greatest integrity in any person I have ever known. Everything that is real and matters in me can be traced back to this guy. I loved him. When the family left, the Jehovah's Witness family, he emerged from our basement and, and said to me, are you finished fighting? And walked away. That was a moment that changed much in me. Because in that moment, a patriarch reminded me who you are and who you are not meant to be. This is not what this whole thing is about. Are you finished fighting? Well, the answer to that question is yes. Sometimes it requires a patriarch to remind you who you are and who you're not. And Jacob shows up in this text this morning to remind not just Joseph and all of his brothers, but all of the people of faith that when you move into a strange and foreign land that is not the land of your birth, there is a way to remember who you are and who you are not. So let's pick up 
the text as we begin in chapter 46, verse number 1. When Israel, that's Jacob, set out on his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I, am, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's own hand shall close your eyes. This is not the first time that Jacob the patriarch had been to Beersheba. He had been there before. Do you remember several weeks ago when we were in our Patriarchs and Matriarchs series, he was camped out one night near Beersheba. He was between Beersheba and Haran. He was at a place where he was running from the destruction he had caused. He had to leave a life that he once knew, but he had not yet begun his new life and he was caught there between the already of what had already happened and the not yet of what had not yet come at Beersheba he worshiped but this time he stops at Beersheba with all his family now and he's anxious he's anxious because Beersheba is the is the southernmost tip of the land of Canaan it is the southern border it is the last spot, the doorway that exits the land of promise. He's leaving. He's leaving the land of Canaan. And if he moves past Beersheba, he has departed it and he's filled with anxiety and he doesn't know if he really wants this. And he worships. You know, that is what you do when you don't know which way to turn. You come to a place where you say, Lord, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it makes sense. This famine is killing my family, and the only relief is down in Egypt. It seems like the only way we'll survive is to make it to Egypt. But am I selling out? Because everything that you've told me about my promise, everything that you have told me about the promised life is there on that dirt in Canaan. And here I am leading everybody out. Is this a mistake? Have I sold out? What should I do? And he worships. I think that is, that is what we do when we're confused. Don't know which way to go next. You got an issue with a, a relationship, a decision, a work, or a vocational uh, crisis that you're in, whatever it is. Don't, to find some altar and kneel before it and, and say, Lord, you see the long arc of my life. You see it from beginning to end. I only see right now. What do I do? And the beauty of this response is that the Lord responds to him there in verse 3 and says, Jacob, Jacob. And I love the way the text writes it because interchangeably we were using the word Israel and Jacob back and forth to describe the same guy. But here the Lord speaks to him and doesn't call him Israel. He calls him Yahov, Yahov. And you'll remember that the translation of the word Jacob means heel grabber or in other words, one who clings 
it's almost as if he's saying literally, one who clings, one who clings. It's time to let go. I think there are seasons when it is absolutely possible to simultaneously cling to the thing that matters most on the interior while relinquishing on the exterior the way the promise is living and playing out in our lives. God speaks to Jacob like he's speaking to a son. Sometimes I'll talk to the guys and I'll say, if they're anxious and I don't want them to be anxious, Nathan, Nathan. Jackson, Jackson. I hear a term of endearment here when he says, one who clings, one who clings. There is something that must be relinquished even now. And he goes on with the rest of the verse here. He says in the next verse, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, which is fascinating language. It's almost verbatim the same words that are used for Jacob's grandfather, Abram, when God first comes to Abram and says, I will make of you a great nation. This is my promise to you. I'll be with you. Using the very same words he speaks to Jacob and assures him that even though you're leaving the land that you have associated with the promise, the promise you're not leaving at all. The promise will go with you because the promise goes in you. And Jacob had associated everything about the promise of God with that particular territory, that that physical, tangible, visible thing that he could associate. Oh, that's the promise. And that's part of it. But what he was learning is that this is a mobile promise because of the relationship that abides inside him. There are times when I think that's what Jesus was talking about later. Jesus, later on, when he's talking in the first century, he's talking to to people who in the same way had associated like the kingdom of God with very tangible things. Oh, the kingdom's coming, but but in order to get to the kingdom, well, we need the temple. We need uh, kind of a rigid allegiance or obedience to to a certain set of religious practices. We have to have the law. There are certain There are certain mechanisms in first century Judaism that are going to get us to the kingdom. And Jesus was like, no, those things are great. But the kingdom of God, the reign and realm of God's holy love is in you now. It goes with you because it goes in you. And all those mechanisms, temple, law, religious practices, are meant to illumine the kingdom that is already in you. They are pathways to help you see the aliveness of God that is in you. And Jacob, Jacob, you're leaving Palestine for a while. You're leaving Canaan for a while. But the promise goes with you because the promise goes in you. And I love the rest of the language. It says, I will take you down to Egypt, but then I will raise you back up. Now see, that's resurrection language, isn't it? You will go down, but you will be raised up because I will be with you. And this is where you and I struggle. Those of us who live in an upwardly mobile society where we are taught from the time we are 
in coach pitch baseball. That it's about winning and succeeding and climbing and striving and contending. From the time we're young enough to learn, we're taught that we are meant to ascend, 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 climb, grow, go. So when we enter into a season of descent, where something happens and it brings us down, we don't know what to do. We are afraid of going down to Egypt because what if we never make it back? But the beauty of faith, the beauty of the Christian faith, the mystery of the Christian faith is this. In God's new arrangement, the only way up is down. Down is the new up. It's what we call the Paschal mystery. That in the dying to ourselves, God raises us up to new life. Yeah. So he comforts Jacob and says, you'll be all right. Not because of you, but because I'm with you. And I don't know what season of descent you may be facing. And it may be that you come to a place where it feels as if you're taking a step backward or you're losing something or you're in retreat of some sort. And I get it. But remember that in the economy of God, the way up is down. So Jacob says, all right. That's literally in the Hebrew, that's how it sounds. All right. And goes into Egypt, and we pick up the story there because as they get to Egypt, it's time, oh man, this is great, it's time for Joseph to introduce the king to his family. Here, meet the in-laws. And we pick up reading in verse 28. Israel sent Judah, that's his oldest, sent Judah ahead of him, or ahead of Yoda, uh, Yoda, ahead of Yoda. Yoda was there. Mace Windu, the whole council was there. Israel sent Judah ahead to Joseph to lead the way before him into Goshen. When they came to the land of Goshen, Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet his father Israel in Goshen. He presented himself to him, fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I love that. I love that. Israel said to Joseph, I can now die Having seen for myself that you are still alive, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, and they have brought their flocks and their herds. And you will say, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from the youth even until now, both we and our ancestors, in order that you may settle in the land of Goshen because all shepherds are abhorrent to the Egyptians. This is a great text. So he's meeting his father who, by the way, can we just say, He's seeing now his father for the first time in years, and don't let it be lost on us. He is seeing the only one on the planet who ever really saw him. It was his father 
who recognize there's something different about this kid. <laughs> He's got a multicolored soul. In fact, here's a coat to tell the world who you really are. He was the only one who really saw Joseph. And now he's been dead to him for so long, and here he sees him again. Ken DeCreasy Dean is an expert at Princeton Theological Seminary in youth ministry, and she talks about our, our walk with students who are hungry for trusted relationships. There are plenty of relationships that can't be trusted but hungry for mentoring relationships who can be trusted. And there's a limerick, there's, a, there's a, a phrase that she uses to describe the experience of these sisters and brothers, who, some of whom are here on the front here. Uh, and it goes like this. In the mind of a, of a student, it goes a little like this. I see you see me. And I become the me I think you see. I see you see me. And so I become the me that I think you see. The only one who had ever really seen him was his father. And now he sees him again for the first time. And he weeps. I love the text. It says he weeps on his neck for a good while. Takes a while to dry it up. But when he dries it up, he turns to his brothers and says to them, Now, guys, I'm about to take you in to meet Pharaoh. Don't embarrass me. Here's how this is going to play out. I'm going to walk you in there, and he's going to say, oh, what do you do for a living? He's going to say, what's your occupation? Well, let me stop there for just a moment. What you and I have to understand is there is a, an intense animosity between the pharaohs and shepherds. It seems as if it's possible that one of the ruling parties of Egypt prior to the pharaohs were the Hiskos dynasty, which was kind of shepherd kings who reigned and ruled. And there was this animosity between the, the pharaohs who were now in charge and the previous administration. And if you want to get a sense of what that feels like, just go into any one of the counties in Georgia, deep in the county, and ask them what they think about Yankees. <laughs> that here, a century and a half or more... Uh, Away from the civil, there's still this deep-seated, I don't know if I can trust you. So Joseph says, look, when you're going in to talk to Pharaoh, you guys have been shepherds your whole life. You don't understand there's this thing here. So when he says, what do you do for a living? You need to say, we are keepers of livestock. Because that sounds better. It's noble. It sounds a little bit more esteemed. You're keepers of livestock. So guess what happens? In verse 3 of chapter 47, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said, shepherds. <laughs> and I don't exactly know what's going on here, and not many scholars know really what the dynamic, but I kind of think I do. I kind of think Joseph has that speech with him. Hey, listen, don't embarrass me. Let's lift it up a little bit. We are keepers of livestock. And they go in, and then he picks five brothers, and, and Pharaoh says, what do you do? Uh, we're shepherds. Joseph pulls him aside. All right, what are you doing? I told you what to... Were you shamed? Where are you from? You ashamed to be a shepherd? <laughs> Shepherding's good work. Here you are, this high and mighty second only to Pharaoh job. Move away, get this highfalutin education. You don't need to forget where you're from. See? I think there's some of that going on. 
And then it gets really crazy. Because now he's met the brothers, but it's time to meet dad. He takes Jacob, the patriarch, who knows how to remember who he is, in to meet Pharaoh. And we pick up the reading there. In chapter 47, verse 7, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my earthly sojourn are 130. Few and hard have been the years of my life. They do not compare with the years of the life of my ancestors during their long sojourn. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. It's a gorgeous scene. Dad, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, dad. Pharaoh begins with just some small talk. He says, how many are the years of your life? But that's really technically more like a question of, of, of courtesy. It's more of a, so how was your trip? And he asks, how was your trip? And, and, and Jacob answers with, my sojourn has been long and toilsome. I've traversed many a hill and navigated through many a valley. And, and Joseph's like, Dad, not here, not now with the, the whole. And an interesting thing happens. The king of an empire, the father of a family, The king of an empire, the keeper of sheep. And the keeper of sheep blesses the king of an empire. Which raises the question, who has the power in the room? Because more than just being the father of a family, more than just being the keeper of sheep, what Pharaoh doesn't understand, but Jacob knows full well, He's not just a keeper of sheep. He is the keeper of an eternal promise. And I think that's what all this talk about, well, my ancestors were really old. They go way back. This conversation we just heard him say, I'm this many years, I'm 130, but it's, it's nothing to compare to the age of my ancestors. In other words, Jacob's saying, we are keepers of sheep, yes, but keepers of something so eternal, it is older than the Pharaohs themselves. And he reaches out his calloused, aged, hard-earned, working hands and places them on the bald, shaven head of the most powerful man in the region and blesses him. Do you know that there is a promise in you that is so alive and is so old and so real that you have the capacity to bless kings of the earth. I've been saying this to you since our first Sunday together. There is an aliveness in you. Whether or not you see it or not, there is something beautiful and holy and good. It is the promise of God's own holy presence. It's in you. 
It's in you. And because it's in you, you have the capacity to do something that that you could have never imagined you can stand in front of anybody, great or small, rich or poor, and place your hand of blessing upon them. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, do you not know that this thing is in you? We have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and and does not come from us. And he reaches out and blesses just like you are called to reach out and bless. Every person who God puts before you this week It's not a mistake. It's not accident. God is placing people before you so that because of that treasure that is in you, you are the access point for them to be loved. As the story continues, at the end of the chapter, Jacob gets near the end of his life and he has his son Joseph make him a promise. And this is how the promise sounds. Then Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the region of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied exceedingly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time of Israel's death drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and Promise to deal loyally and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my ancestors, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place, he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear it to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed which is not only beautiful in that now it comes full circle. Now even the father has bowed. Remember the dream Joseph had of the sun, moon, and all the 11 stars bowing? Now even his father bows before him. But the request is this, son, don't bury me here. Why, dad? We've got some great land here. This this works. I mean, we've got the choicest of all the region. We can can put you in a really, really great place. Great spot. He says, don't put me here. Because this is not me. I love what Walter Brueggemann said about this. He said, it's almost as if Jacob were saying, I am in Egypt, but I am not of Egypt. Does that phrase resonate with us, right? Do you remember when Jesus, on the last night of his life, was praying for all of us, all of his disciples, and Jesus said these words. He said, my prayer is not Father, that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's the verse that you and I have kind of molded into this this phrase that we sometimes use, that we are meant to be in the world, but not of the world. This is a world that God loves, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be in the world, right? But there was always something in him that was not of this world. 
And so it is with you. You are not called, I am not called to avoid the world. We're called to engage the world, to live in it incarnationally, to to be among neighbors who don't think like us, look like us, believe like us, but to be present with them in such a way that this treasure that is in us will begin to bless them. We are not of this world, but we're in it so that through us, the God of promise can be made known to everybody we know. That's enough today. Let's pray together. God, this is so true. It's just, (laughs) you have placed us in this world and that's not an accident. You have placed us here and you have placed us with these particular people. We work with particular individuals. We we live with particular individuals whom you know, whom you love. And we're not called to avoid them, to stay away from them, but rather we are called, Lord, to be who you have made us to be in the midst of them to show a different kind of love, a different kind of mercy, a different kind of neighborliness. And our prayer this day is that you would remind us of who we are and who we are not so that while we may descend into Egypt, we remember the promise goes with us because the promise goes in us. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.